We're in Colossians 3 this morning, and so I would encourage you to turn there with me. And as we do, um, we've been looking at some large chunks of uh, the book of Colossians, and we are about to slow down quite a bit. Uh, We're going to look at verses 12 through 17 today, and then it's going to take us two weeks to get through verses 18 and 19. We're going to look at wives and husbands. Uh, It's pretty countercultural. so as we head into those passages, I would ask a couple things of you. I would ask you to begin preparing your heart to submit yourself to whatever God's Word says, for one, and for two, uh, to, to make it through both of those sermons. I don't know why Paul puts wives before husbands, um, but I think if we heard about husbands first and the incredible high and hard calling that that is, it might make the instructions to wives uh, at least a little more palatable, though that is uh, not the goal. But these two verses have to be understood together. And so I would ask you to commit yourself to, uh, to being present for both of those weeks. Actually, next Sunday, we'll have some missionaries here. Those will start uh, the weeks after that. There might be nothing more terrifying than preaching on wives uh, in, in today's culture. There's nothing more humiliating, however, than preaching on husbands in front of your wife. And I have to do that. So uh, she's always been very gracious to me, but it's always also very convicting. Uh, Let me read to you Colossians chapter 3 verses 12 through 17 and then I will pray. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word once again that uh, that instructs us, corrects us, teaches us, admonishes us. Um, Lord, give us a great hunger and desire for your word. Uh, Give us a hunger for it when it offends. Give give us a hunger for it when it is countercultural. Give us a a hunger for it when there are so many things uh, competing for our affections. Lord, we pray this morning for uh, our neighbors down the road, Kairos Church. We pray that you would keep them and us faithful and, uh, and, and hungry to your word, that we would, uh, that we would desire it, uh, that we would find it sweeter than honey and desire it more than gold. Lord, we pray this morning also for Ted and Renati Rubish as they uh, are, are, have been awarded a, a three-month visa. Lord, we thank you for that, even though it's Almost coming to an end, we thank you for the visa that you provided for them that goes through the end of next month. And Lord, we ask that as they go through this visa renewal process again, uh, that rather than getting a mere three-month extension, that they would get an actual one-year 
uh, renewal on their visa. Lord, we pray for Renati as her mom uh, passed in April and uh, as family was not allowed to be with her or to be present and that's been difficult on them. Lord, I ask that you would give them comfort. Lord, I pray that as they come to the U.S. uh, on furlough in August, Lord, I ask that you would give them rest and joy while they were here. Lord, it's so easy for churches to demand time and attention and resources from our missionaries when they come home. Uh, and they may be coming home tired. And so, Father, we pray that uh, not only them as they come in August, but the Dodds as they're here this coming weekend, that they would have time to rest and to relax and, and to enjoy themselves and recharge before going back onto the mission field. Lord, as we look at your word today, uh, give us open eyes to understand what it says, but give us soft hearts to desire obedience and to want to do what it says as well. So, Lord, we ask these things for our good and for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes very, very simple things are incredibly hard. For example, flight. Flight is not a a difficult thing to conceive of. If you wanted to fly, all you would have to do is get air to pass over the top of your arms at a rate faster than the bottom of your arms and flap really hard, and you would take off and fly. Certainly we know that's not possible. Or we're breathing underwater. Water is an incredible amount of oxygen. And all you would have to do in order to breathe underwater would be to get your lungs to separate the oxygen out of the water and put it in your bloodstream. Again, not difficult, not incredibly complex, and yet impossible for us. Even though these two things are so simple, they're impossible for us because they are against our nature. We, we weren't made this way. Well, I think the things that Paul calls us to, and really the Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul's pen, are not terribly complex. And yet they're opposed to our nature. And so they are very hard for us. But we have been given a new nature. And Paul has gone to great lengths to explain that to us in the book of Colossians. That for those of us who have understood our sinfulness and the offense of our sin to God, who have seen Christ for who he is, the eternal son of God who became one of us and lived a sinless life and died a death that he didn't deserve to die in our place so that those of us who surrender to God and and cease to to, to try to, to be good enough or to work our way into heaven and trust in Christ and in Christ alone for what he has done to, uh, to earn our spot in heaven for us, we've been given a new nature. And this is pictured for us in baptism. When somebody believes, when somebody trusts in Christ, when they no longer say, I think I'm good enough, but Christ was good enough on my behalf and died in my place and I will trust him, we baptize them. And the act of baptism uh, pictures this reality. That we have died with Christ. That his death is now our death. His life is now our life. And and it reveals to us that we have been given a new nature. But there's this this conflict in us all. Between the new nature, what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians, the inner man, which is being renewed day by day, and the outer man, which is wasting away. Which has not yet been made alive. Which still has to die unless Christ returns. 
And so we live in this, this conflicted state of, of our hearts, our new nature in us that, that wants to do what's right and our, our, our old sinful nature still in our flesh. And simple things become very, very hard. And Paul here calls us, as he called in us in the last passage, to put off, using clothing language, these, these vices of the flesh. He calls us here to put on the, these godly attributes and characteristics. But he does so from a place of showing us what our new nature is. How does God see you when he looks at you? To paraphrase Tim Keller, uh, there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who find it easy to believe that God loves them, and those who find it easy to believe that God is angry with them. And our job as believers is to battle ourselves in whichever one we are, because both are true. Our sin deserves God's wrath. But is that how God sees us? Look at the opening of verse 12. Paul says, put on then, and then he says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. This is our identity. For those of us who have trusted Christ, who have been saved, who have been forgiven of our sins, who have been given a new nature, who have have taken part in baptism, which does nothing but picture what has already happened, we are God's chosen ones. Holy, that means set apart, and loved. Whatever you take that to mean is less important than to understand that what Paul is saying is God picked you, and he set you apart, and he loves you. He loves you. This is who we are. This is our new identity. It's easy for me to believe that God would be angry with me. And this is something I have to fight all the time. Because I think it's low views of the cross that lead us to believe that if we have, if we have trusted Christ, if we've forgiven of our, been forgiven of our sins, that there's any anger left. There is not. If you have trusted Christ... That anger was spent at the cross. And there's none left over. There's none for you. God, his anger towards us never wells up. He never has to stifle it. He never has to battle it. Because he spent it, and he spent it all on his son, at the cross, and, and he loves us not because we are worthy of being loved, but because he picked us and set us apart, and because it's his character to love. This is who we are, and we should not take this lightly. In many ways, this passage is the exact opposite of what we saw last week. Last week, we saw these three imperatives, and today we're going to look at three imperatives. And Paul begins by giving us a list of five vices of the flesh and five vices of the heart to put off. Well, here we see he opens with a list of five virtues to put on. Last, in the last passage, we saw that he singles out one sin as particularly heinous, and that is lying. And this week, we'll, we will see that he, he, he singles out two virtues that are of particular importance, love and peace. 
And then last week we saw that he tells us how to put these things to death, and that is that that we are to be renewed in the knowledge of God. And this week he is going to tell us how to be victorious in putting on these characteristics. And so in many ways what we see is the exact opposite of what we saw last week, but the structure of this passage is almost identical. So let's start again with a look at three imperatives. Three commands that we're given here. There's more than three. I'll point some of them out, but we're going to focus on uh, the big three to start. Number one, put on godliness. Put on godliness. And, and Paul gives us this list of five virtues. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Uh, this is a deep sense of concern for one another's suffering. Uh, In the Greek, it's literally compassionate bowels, and and not bowels as we think of intestines, but but, but the deepest parts of who you are should feel compassion towards others. Because God is compassionate towards us. I think it's his mercy that moves him to be compassionate, but we don't often understand the difference between mercy and grace. Now, let's imagine for a moment that you were as in debt as the U.S. You were, I'm going to, I'll maybe even inflate the number a little. Let's say you are $40 trillion in debt. Now, this is a sum of money that could not possibly be repaid. You couldn't earn that money in a lifetime. There's no way our country can repay that, let alone us as individuals. And somebody comes along who who feels compassionately for your miserable plight. They feel deeply for, for the trouble that you're in. And they have a bank account that is inexhaustible, full of so many riches that that there's no way they could spend it all in their lifetime. And out of mercy, they deposit $40 trillion into your checking account. That takes you from a place of misery and ruin to zero. And that would be incredibly kind. That is what mercy does. It sees somebody in their miserable plight and rescues them out of it. But now imagine that same person said, I, I understand that, that I've brought you back to zero. But I want more than that for you. I want you to be able to have all of the good things that life has to offer. And they deposit another $40 trillion into your account for you to spend out of. That would be gracious. Merciful brings us to infinitely in debt because of our sin to zero. It's God's grace that brings us, as Ephesians 1 tells us, to the place where in Christ God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And that far exceeds $40 trillion. It was paid for at the price of his son. But it is God's mercy that leads him to compassion for us, a compassion that led him to suffer and die in our place. Do you feel deeply for the struggles of others? Do you even bother to look for them? I think what I see going on in the world around us is, is this argument be, between a group of people for any number of groups of people for any number of reasons who say that they have this real existential, miserable fear in their lives. And then there's the, another group of people who are saying, what do you have to be afraid about? Stop being afraid. 
Do we stop in that to say whether or not they have reason to be afraid, these people might be experiencing real existential fear? And even if we think that it's for bad reasons, can can we stop and care for them simply for for where they are? Does our heart go out deeply towards the miserable plight of others? particularly in regards to their sin and their need for the gospel. We're called to put on compassionate hearts. Secondly, we're called to put on kindness. Uh, This refers to a spirit that is good and generous. How do you treat the receipt checker at Walmart when they stop you on your way out? Or the host at the restaurant who can't get you a table right away? Are you kind to them? Is their day better for having had an interaction with you? Thirdly, humility uh, consists not so much in thinking less of oneself, but in thinking of one's self less. When things don't go your way at church, or at work, or at home, uh, when the actions of others cost you something, who do you think of first? What you need or what others need? Do you concern yourself with what you want and what you desire or or with what your husband or your wife or your children or or the members of this church, what, what they may need? Humility consists mostly in just not thinking about ourselves. Fourthly, meekness is gentleness or mildness. Now, I would say that uh, outside of biblical writings, at the time period when the New Testament was written, both humility and meekness are never used in positive terms. They're always derogatory. It was derogatory. It was a bad thing in this culture to be humble. It was a bad thing in this culture to be gentle. And yet the the New Testament authors, they grab these words and they call us to be these things that the world thought were lowly and weak and unimportant. What is meekness? I think Curtis Vaughn in his commentary said it best when he said, meekness is the special mark of a man who has delicate considerations for the rights and feelings of others. Listen to that again. Meekness is the special mark of a man who has delicate considerations for the rights and feelings of others. Is your manner abrasive? Are are people worried that they might set you off? Do you listen to what others are going through? And fifthly, and maybe most difficult for me, is patience. If you have an old King James or even maybe a new King James, you might find that your Bible calls this long-suffering. In Greek, it is literally a word that means long-burning. How short is your fuse? How long does your fuse have to burn before you blow? Are you willing to suffer for a long period of time under the sins and actions of of one another. And what comes in verse 13 further describes what it means to be patient. These are not two new things. Uh, the, these two descriptions in verse 13 further define patience. And the first further description we get is bearing with one another. This is enduring difficulty at another's expense. 
If somebody else is causing you difficulty, are you looking for a way out? Or are you willing to burn long under that difficulty? Secondly, uh, the, the next description, and this is even more difficult, is forgiving each other. Forgiving each other. The word here uh, in, in Greek is not the typical word used for forgiving. The root word of this is grace. It's charis. Being gracious to one another. As, the word as here is a word that means just as or in the identical manner as the Lord has forgiven you. How do you want God to forgive you when you sin? Begrudgingly? Holding it over your head, slow to forgive, constantly bringing it up and throwing it in your face. That's not how God forgives us. God forgives us immediately. He forgives us absolutely. This might sound like a weird statement, but I don't ever ask for God's forgiveness. I thank him for it. This does not mean I don't think I need God's forgiveness. I need need God's forgiveness every single day over and over and over. But when I confess my sin to God, I don't say, Lord, I did this thing. Would you please forgive me of it? I say, Lord, I did this thing. Thank you for already having forgiven me. Because his forgiveness is immediate and absolute for those of us who are in Christ. And when we come to Christ, when we trust him and we are forgiven, we are forgiven of all our sins, past, present, and future. He never holds it against us, he ne- and not at our expense either. He forgives us at his own expense. That is how we are to forgive, in the same way, in the exact same manner as the Lord has forgiven us. And just in case we haven't got the point to hear, Paul reiterates, so you also must forgive. I think one of the things that we need to note here is that in verse 13 when he says, and if one has a complaint against another, he's not, the the language here is a real charge, So when somebody's actions, when their sinfulness rubs up against your sinfulness, when their behavior costs you something, we bear with them. But even when when you have a real charge, even when they have really offended, really hurt, even when there is material damage done, we still are to forgive each other in the same manner that the Lord has forgiven us. How in the world can we do all of that? These things seem so outside of our nature. None of them difficult, or or, or none of them complex, rather. Incredibly simple, but incredibly difficult uh, in this this nature, this this fleshly, sinful nature that we carry around uh, that's part of who we are. How do we do that? Well, verse 14, I think, tells us, above all these, not in place of all of these, you, you can't ignore the list of five virtues in verses 13 or 12 and 13 and still put on love. But above them, the defining characteristic of all of these is that we would put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Uh, literally, uh, above all these, love. The, the put on is borrowed from verse 12. And above all of these, love, which is the bond of perfection. 
It is the perfect bond in the church. If lying is a particularly heinous vice, then love is a particularly beautiful virtue. Love is the only thing that would motivate us to live out all of these virtues that have already been listed. And so we know, and so we're clear, biblically, love is never defined by what it feels. It is always defined by what it does. You won't find a verse in Scripture that says, God loved us so much that he sat in heaven and said, I feel so wonderful about them. Make no mistake, Scripture is full of how God feels about us. We've already been reminded of that in this passage, that we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, that he delights in us, that he celebrates over us even. There is emotion involved in God's love. But it's never, it's never merely that. God's love is always defined for us by what it does. Romans 5, 8 says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is displayed to us in terms of his actions. In 1 Corinthians, a passage, a passage we may all know very well, uh, bookended by 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, no surprise there, but about how a church can live peacefully together, we find uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 13. For, for 12 chapters in 1 Corinthians, Paul has gone on over sin after sin after sin after sin that plagues the Corinthian church. And we get to 13 and he doesn't just randomly give us a, a chapter for weddings. He gives us a chapter for how all the sins of chapters 1 through 12 are fixed. And the answer is love. And like a diamond with 15 facets cut into it or, or like a string of pearls where he just keeps adding pearl after pearl after pearl, he gives us this description that love is patient, kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. Uh, literally in the Greek, it, it puts a roof on, like columns holding up a roof. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And, and when you read this in the Greek, all 15 of those descriptions are verbs, they're all action words. They're all things that are done. Love is being patient, being kind, not envying, not boasting, not being arrogant or rooting, if that were even a word, but that's how it occurs in the Greek. Not insisting on its own way, not being irritable or being resentful. It is not rejoicing at wrongdoing, but rejoicing with the truth, bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. If you want to know whether or not you love somebody, don't look to how you feel about them. Look at how you treat them. Look at what you do. Biblically, love is defined by what we do. And love, above all of these, is what leads us to live them out. And it is the bond of perfection that, that binds everything in perfect harmony. Thirdly, we pursue peace. 
We pursue peace, verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. We cannot create peace. Ephesians 4 calls us to be eager to maintain it. In chapters 2 and 3 of Ephesians, Paul goes to great lengths to explain to us how Christ and his death have brought peace. Peace between us and God and peace between us and each other. And then in, in the opening of verse, or chapter 4, he says to be eager to maintain it, not create it maintain it because Christ has created it. That same word eager in in Ephesians 4 is translated uh, elsewhere as make every effort. Make every effort to maintain peace that only the gospel can create. But as I was studying this, there was something interesting about this verse. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Well, what does it mean to rule in your hearts? Of course, the picture that comes to my mind is of a king sitting on a throne and being in charge, just ruling, telling everything the way it's going to be. But that's not the word here. This word, in fact, only occurs here in the Greek, uh, or in the Greek New Testament. This is the only place it occurs, and it is very, very closely connected with the word we saw in chapter 2, verse 18, that said, let no one disqualify you. Now, if you remember from that sermon, I said this was a word that came out of the sporting world, uh, like an umpire. Uh, Don't let anyone call you out. Don't let anyone disqualify you. This word is is a, a very, very similar form of that word. Let the peace of Christ rule. Make the judgment call. Act as the umpire. The picture that comes to my mind is that not of a king on a throne, but a judge behind a desk. And when there is conflict in the church between this person and that person, or your home, or your family, or at work, and the gavel in God's court drops, the judgment is always peace. Where is there conflict in your life? The judgment from heaven is peace. The ruling in God's court is peace. When your friend offends you, do you find a new friend? When there's difficulty in relationships at a church, do you find a new church? Or a new spouse? Or somebody to act as a spouse? Or do you let the constant ruling in God's courtroom be peace? Whatever makes for peace. Romans Be at peace with all men so much as it depends upon you. Sometimes we can't have peace with people because of their actions. But far be it from us to never have peace with somebody because we are unwilling. To what extent must we go to create and have and maintain and keep peace? There is no limit. There was no limit to God's keeping of or creating peace with us. And so we must always do what makes for peace. Why does it matter so much? Because, uh, verse 15, we were called indeed in one body. Now, how do we do all of this? It's important for us to know because uh, as commentator James Dunn said, and I think he said rightly, the church that fails in the virtues of this paragraph falls for the vices in the paragraph before. 
When we fail to put on uh, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, love, and peace, we fall for sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying for one, to one another. And so it is of the utmost importance that we consider how do we live these out, and the answer, uh, pretty much identically to last week, is the Word of God. Verse 16, how do we do all of this? We, here's another imperative, this is not optional, we let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let here does not mean give permission. It's not like a passive giving permission where we let something happen to us. No, the word let here indicates an imperative. You are to allow the word of Christ to dwell richly in you. The word dwelling here is like a, 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 a make home inside. Our lives, our hearts are to be fitting dwelling places for the word of God. Last week I shared Bunyan's statement that he had written in the front of his Bible uh, that this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Howard Hendricks very similarly said, uh, dusty Bibles always lead to dirty lives. When our lives and hearts are filled with sin, there's no way God's word can dwell deeply in us. By the way, we live in our homes daily. If you were to stay in some place once a week, it would most likely be a hotel, a place you don't live at. Does God's word have a dwelling place in your life on Sunday mornings and on a shelf Monday through Saturday? Or, is it, or are you allowing God's word to make a home in your life? Not an occasional visit, not as a guest, but does it live there? There is not room in our lives for both God's word and our sin. And when God's word lives deeply in us, it changes us. We become these kinds of people. When the gospel reminds us daily of our sinfulness and God's holiness, of our hatred for him and our sin and of his compassion for us, of his death in our place and resurrection in our stead. We can't help but be, to be changed from the inside out. And Paul gives us three, uh, three participles, three words, three further descriptions here of what it means to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And I think of note is the fact that they are all corporate Paul does not call us to become personal, private, at-home, in-the-study Bible scholars. No, he calls us to be a unified, gathered, corporate uh, group of believers. That's what the church is. It is a gathering. That's what the word means. It is people who are called out together. And, and, and they're all corporate. You, you cannot, uh, I, I'll, I'll make a bold statement here, but I think this is what Paul is saying. You cannot let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, just privately. You need the church. Ephesians, it is together with all the saints that we comprehend what is the depth and length and width and breadth 
of the love of God in Christ. Paul calls us not to be individuals merely who have the word dwelling in us richly. We need that, and Scripture is full of those examples as well. But here, he specifically calls us into becoming these kinds of people corporately. Let the word of Christ dwell in, we should live in Texas. This is not you singular, it's y'all. Let the word of Christ dwell in y'all richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This flies in the face of our culture. This says, I can do things on my own. This rugged Northwest individualism that says, I'm all right by myself, and I don't really need the church. I heard Alistair Begg say this week, the test of a church's hunger for the word of God is the evening service. And he said it's an indictment on the American churches that so many of our churches are dark after 4 p.m. Our church is demanding shorter services, shorter sermons. I got lunch and places to be at. Don't keep me Sunday night. I don't want the word of God that much. I couldn't bother myself to be at a Bible study. I'm teaching my kids to pursue sports more than anything else. You know, in the Reformation, after after centuries of the absence of the word of God, when that fire was lit, uh, the churches barely had time to sing. I'm not advocating not singing because it's commanded of us as well. But they would literally attach a stand to the pulpit where there would be an hourglass. And the hourglass would run for one hour. And the preacher was given two turns of the hourglass. Two hours. And on a Reformation tour, somebody asked Steve Lawson, well, where was the time for singing? Lawson's response was, they didn't think much of singing. They were starved for the word for so many years. Again, he's not saying we shouldn't sing either. But the issue then, the issue now is, how can we have time for for singing when, when, when there's preaching? And you can find books that abound on getting rid of preaching for more conversational discussions. That's not what preaching is. That's discipleship. Have those too. But the church should demand the word of God. The church early in the Reformation in Geneva demanded of its pastors that they preach three times at that kind of length on Sunday, plus repeatedly about four or five times throughout the week. And the people showed up. Today, we sit around and we go, how can we communicate about an event we're trying to do at a church to people who only show up once a month? Well, church, this should not be. You're relegating yourselves to, to, to Christian lives that, where you fall for vices because you're not engaged in the community of Christ because corporately we're not allowing his word to dwell in us richly. How does the church allow the word to dwell in us richly? Well, I've already mentioned these three things. Paul says that we allow the word to dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another. Notice that's the corporate aspect. In all wisdom and singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Uh, Teaching must be biblical. If it isn't, then it isn't the kind of teaching that will produce anything worthwhile. Feel-good sermons produce Pharisees and dead hearts. We preach the word. We preach Christ. We preach Christ crucified. 
And by way of reminder, when Paul tells us we preach Christ crucified, he says a stumbling block to all the perishing. We teach. Uh, The church must demand biblical instruction. We admonish, which is correcting sins in our lives. If you come to church and you're like, man, that sermon was too hard. I need to go home and put on some Joel Osteen because I need to feel good about myself. You have missed the point. We feel good, a feel-good sermon should make much of God, not much of you. Admonishing corrects us for our sin. It calls us to, to do what we must. I was at a, a, a conference for young adults in uh, Palm Springs, and one speaker gets up on stage, and he started out his sermon by saying, you know, I was, um, I was confronted by, and he named the other speaker who was there this morning, uh, he came up to me and he, he corrected me for something I said that was sinful. And I just publicly want to thank that brother for loving me enough to correct my sin. Is that how we view others in the church when they correct our sin? As somebody who loves us enough to warn us? Or, or do we go, how dare they tell me what to do? Oh, don't they know that they're, not, they're supposed to pull the log out of their own eye? Or do we, do we thank them for admonishing us? And lastly, singing. Again, this is corporate. It, it has, notice, both vertical aspects. We sing to God, but we sing to one another. Our singing is a, a means of teaching And so our our singing must be filled with what is true and must be filled with God's word. You may very well be able to worship uh, at home alone or to the radio. And that is fine and good. I hope you do. But you cannot sing to one another outside the context of the community of the church. I think any attempt to distinguish with any real definition what the difference between a psalm and a hymn and a spiritual song is, is not really the point that Paul is making here. If you want my interpretation of what those uh, three different things represent, you can ask me later. Uh, But bottom line is Paul is calling us to sing to God, to one another, and to the Lord. And lastly, why? If that's how, by allowing the word of Christ to dwell in us richly, what's the why? Why do we do all this? Because verse 17 says we're witnesses for God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Doing something in Jesus' name is doing something as his representative, under, under his authority, a representative of the king might, might go somewhere and deliver a message in the king's name. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, this is the message, this is our message as ambassadors. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How do we show the world that the gospel is true? By living sanctified lives. We can't show the world that God takes sin seriously if we don't take sin seriously. 
We're really good right now, I think, at throwing stones at the sin of the world and, and, and accepting our own. And then we wonder why the world doesn't take us seriously as pertains sin. They'll take us seriously, not when we condemn them for acting according to their nature, but when we take seriously the call to live into our new nature and put to death what is worldly in us. We can't show the world that God takes sin seriously if we don't. We can't show the world that there is power in the gospel over sin if we don't display that power. We show what God is like when we live as Christians, a term that was originally given to the church in a mocking way. They were called little Christs. That's what the word Christian means. And that's exactly right. We show the world what God is like when we live as little Christs in the world. We pursue peace in the church. Oh, far too often, the, world, or the church pursues peace with the world while having conflict in the church. And then we wonder why churches are getting old and dying. Peace must rule. Peace must make the final judgment. We'll never win the world by befriending the world. We'll win the world by having peace here. It is our unity and love that makes the gospel attractive because it shows it for what it is. One final thought. While Paul prohibits specific activities in the list of vices, when he says don't do these things and many of them are actions, he does not promote one single activity in this list of virtues. He tells us what not to do in in his list of vices, but he doesn't tell us what to do in his list of virtues. Why not? Because the new covenant is not a covenant of laws. It's not a covenant of rules. It's not a covenant of just sheer obedience to a system of laws. As Paul says in Galatians, if a law could have been given that would have saved us, God would have done it. But he sent his son. Rather, these virtues come out of our character and speak to our character. Because the new covenant is a covenant of hearts. A covenant of people who have been given new hearts where their hearts were once dead, who are indwelt by the Spirit and who live as representatives of Jesus in the world. Are you living like one who has been given a new heart? The only way to do that is to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly within the community of the church and individually at home. Let's pray. Lord, may we be uh, comfortable homes for your word. May your word dwell down deeply and richly in us. May we receive the teaching of the word. May we demand it. May we show our children by our actions, by our commitment to your church, that we believe that your word is finer than gold and sweeter than honey. May may we not just by our lips say that your word is good, but with our lives pursue sports and money and other worldly things. But may we as a community of believers and individually as believers uh, be a place where your word dwells richly in teaching and admonishing and, and singing of spiritual songs. 
so that we might be the people you have called us to be, that we might represent you well in the world. And Lord, we ask that the final ruling and judgment of everything in this church would be peace and that we would live out love towards one another as you have defined what it means to be loving. And may that be the the perfect bond that ties us together as we were called to peace in one body. And may it be for your glory and for our good in Jesus' name.